This is the Permaculture Podcast. I'm Scott Mann. Thank you to everyone who has supported this show over the years. As this episode marks the 8th anniversary of the podcast, you've donated, joined Patreon, shared episodes with your friends, listened to your favorites with your co-workers, left reviews on iTunes, Podcast Addict, or wherever you listen to the show, you've shared your comments in the show notes, gave me a call, or sent a letter or email. If it wasn't for you, there wouldn't be more than 500 episodes full of interviews, news, and updates about permaculture, sustainable living, and regenerative business. There wouldn't be conversations with the authors you probably already have on your shelves, such as Dow Ryan, David Holmgren, Toby Hemingway, or Jesse Bloom. Without you, this show would never have become a resource to hear from the latest thought leaders as well as the elders of the community, or where new authors would sit down to record their first media interviews. One of those once-first-time authors is my friend Jeremy Zimmerman, who joined me in 2015 to talk about Make Mead Like a Viking. He returns today for this anniversary episode to share about his latest book, Brew Beer Like a Yeti. Recorded in person at the 2018 Mother Earth News Fair in Seven Springs, Pennsylvania, we talk about ancient brews, interesting flavors, and the domestication of yeast. We dive into the historical importance of fermented beverages, hops, and water, and how brewing was, for most of human history, of a communal nature. Enjoy this conversation with Jeremy, and I'll join you again afterward. Then Jeremy, it's been a little while since we talked, and since then your first book, Make Me Like a Viking, has been a wild success. From everybody who I've talked to who's gotten a chance to read it, they've been really happy about learning about not only the wild fermentation, but also this resurgence of mead. And I think in many ways, as many of the meaderies have come around, there were some old stalwart books that people could find if they were interested. But yours really came in at the right time to be a part of that and encouraged a lot of people who I know locally who were making beer and wine to try their hand again at making mead. But now you've come back with your book, Brew Beer Like a Yeti, which really fits in with your nickname, with the Red-Headed Yeti. And that's always interesting and exciting for me to kind of come back to ground and take this other direction with what it is that you were doing. Now, of course, my first introduction to you was about mead. We had an opportunity not only to record that first interview, but also to meet on several occasions, and I got to drink some of what you were making then. But what was it that brought you to beer after being really so well regarded as a mead maker? Well, to be honest, beer was my first love. I just happened to write my first book about mead, but I started with brewing beer. I bought my first home brewing kit somewhere back in 2000 and brewed a lot of beer, and I went into mead from beer. And interest in mead actually started more with wanting to learn how ancient cultures or even people 100, 200 years ago were brewing. And I was getting interested in mead around that same time, did a lot of research and reading into like Viking history and stuff. So that's kind of how Make Mead Like a Viking came about. But as I was researching that and writing it, I found that with all the research I did, Beer came up a lot more than mead. <laughs> so essentially, I was just gathering all this material that I wanted to put in the first book, but I knew just didn't quite fit the theme or didn't fit it at all. And just kind of set all that aside, made some notes and things I wanted to look into further. Really wanted to get back into brewing beer pretty heavily again. So you know, now I brew beer and mead. I always did, but I'm focusing a little more on beer now just because I needed to practice recipes for the book. So yeah, essentially that's kind of, it was this, this route that I took. Started with beer, went to mead, went back to beer, 
and now it's really all kind of together. And I, I should add to that the fact that historically, beer, mead, cider, all those things, when I was looking into the etymology of the words, it's it doesn't sound like they were really as divided as they are now. So in my mind, it's all kind of just part of the, the same picture. And that was something that Pascal Baldar mentioned when we did his interview about his new book on using wild ingredients and wild fermentation for brewing was about where are those lines and how you divide them. And he doesn't divide them that much either. And I kind of think it's the same things that really, you know, is it still, is it carbonated? What's the alcohol content? And there's such, it's really more of a spectrum now because of all the different flavors and ingredients that we can use. I started brewing from kits and did some partial grain before my celiac diagnosis and stopped making beer and started moving towards wine and mead myself, which is why I had the interest in interviewing you the first time. But in doing that, a lot of those early books that brought us to home brewing were really about, you know, like sterilization, a lot of sanitizing, a lot of like careful recipes and things. And though we have all kind of clone recipes and other things that we could do, that it really felt like it was the home brewing groups that were experimenting a lot. For me and my exposure to this, only been in the last couple of years that more of this information about going in different directions come. And now I really like your book because after kind of the pale ale craze and going really, really hoppy, that what you're working with now is like a lower hop um, or less hop brews. And I was wondering, like, why did you go in that direction? Was it just because that's what you like to drink or was it because of what you were finding from the historical recipes? It was a little bit of both. In a way, you know, that what I like to drink didn't necessarily lead me in that direction. But I, I, I'm not a huge fan of IPAs. I, there are some I like if they're balanced right. I do feel personally that it's, it's easy to overhop a beer. But, you know, all that's really kind of beside the point. I mean, it's part of the point, but really it was the historical research. I mean, it, most of my stuff really has been driven by my research first and just see where that takes me. I mean, the book went in directions I didn't expect it to, but. As I'm doing the research, it sends me down what I like to call rabbit trails. So I catch on something in one book, and I'm like, oh, that's interesting. And then I look into it further, and sometimes it leads to a dead end or not much useful. But there are a number of times where it just kept leading me further down and you know, finding out that you know, more and more that whatever the particular subject was, that it was something that was actually pretty big historically that has been glossed over in modern times. So... Really, a lot of it was just driven by research and experimentation. When it came to the research, what were some of the interesting things that you found along the way? A um, whole lot of stuff. There's a reason the, the second book is close to twice the size of the first, and I had to actually cut a fair bit out of it, so who knows if that might make it into something else. But, um, yeah, there were a number of things that surprised me, to be honest, and I... I took the ones that I was able to really focus on because, you know, there, there are a few things I just didn't make in the book because I wasn't really able to experiment with the actual recipes. So, you know, I took ones that, that made sense for me to experiment with that I, I could access the ingredients easily enough. And, you know, one of the big things that I've been playing around with quite a bit is using juniper, um, juniper branches and berries, which it's starting to become clear to me in my research that juniper was was pretty much what people used instead of hops for a lot longer than we realize. And it kind of seems to be this thing that's been not really pushed aside by the modern homebrewing community, but just not known about, or even the beer writer community. And that, that was 
it's still used a lot in Scandinavia, but in like pretty much farmhouse brewing, there's really not really much in the way of actual breweries doing it. So that's just an example. One thing that really got me and that I personally have been experimenting with a lot. And when I say juniper, you know, there's the type of juniper that's available in Scandinavia and they're all different types and not all of it is edible. Some of it's toxic actually. So on my part of the country, I'm in Eastern Kentucky. Eastern red cedar is actually a type of juniper. So that's what I brew with. And the nice thing about that is it's everywhere. I mean, I can, I can go out my back door and not long at all. I can have some. It's available all year round. You don't always have to have the berries. So that's, that's one great thing about it is it's, it's free. It's something I can forage. You know, hops I have to buy or even if you grow it, it's, it's takes a bit to grow it. That's definitely something that intrigued me about that is how very sustainable it is and easy to, to obtain. So there, there are definitely a number of other directions that I went as well. Were some of those the herbal ingredients and exploration of flavor? Yeah, I mean, I played around with a lot of herbs that I kept seeing certain ones come up time and again. Yarrow, meadow, sweet. There are a lot of stuff that's just growing in my yard, like ale hoof, which has many other names, Creeping Charlie. There's lots of different ways people, lots of different names for a lot of these herbs. Pretty much anything with the word wort, W-O-R-T, which is unfermented beer. I didn't. I haven't experimented with all of it in detail, but... Those herbs get their names because they're traditionally used in beer. St. John's wort is a common one. Mugwort, there's a lot of it. So the main thing I really wanted to find was things that would give the bittering and the antiseptic qualities of hops. The flavor is nice too, but if you get the flavor and then the beer just goes sour, then that doesn't work so well for me. Although some people have liked the ones that I've had unintentionally go sour. So I hand those to my wife. She likes those the only sour beers that I really enjoyed were the Lambics. And, you know, those are a double brew. I'd have a bit of that wild yeast and give a bit of a, like, a sour undertone with the fruit over top. So you get yeah. that, you know, sweet front and sour finish. But, yeah, when I was in Kentucky a number of years ago, I drank some sour beers with someone down there. And they were not my cup of tea. Mm-hmm. It's interesting the way that we kind of develop our palates and the things that we like and what we can find through all of these different ingredients. Um, and what we enjoy. And that was one of the things that I really liked when you and I got to spend some time with each other previously and drinking some of your meads is you were bringing so much flavor that I'd never experienced before. And at the Mid-Atlantic Permaculture Convergence, you pulled out that jug of, I think it was your curry mead, and it was just like a plate of yellow curry and a sip. And reading your recipes about beer and where you're going with some of those flavors, I'm interested to explore that, in particular like the juniper, because one of my favorite liquors is gin. But... Most of the gin that I've drank is juniper berries for flavoring. But I think about um, some of the Scandinavian cooking that I've been interested in and explored using the buds during the spring or using the branches over the winter. And like the buds are going into the pot to flavor a stock, but the branches then are going into the fire then when you're roasting your meats and things. And the way that those flavors vary, and I'm interested in seeing how the beer tastes change using those different ingredients. Yeah, and another interesting thing that brings up is the juniper branches are used in all different parts of the brewing process. They were actually used as a filter for the grain bed. So the original, you know, the mash tun, that's the uh, thing that you, the piece of equipment you use to, to brew beer from all grain. So now, you know, people build mash tuns usually from coolers and stuff like that. And they, you know, put together some kind of a filter system, usually with something you buy from a hardware store. 
And but traditionally, the uh, yeah, they would just lay a bunch of those branches in the bottom that would act as the filter and provide some flavoring. And you know, a lot of times those branches were smoked, so all parts of the tree were basically used. So I, yeah, I, it's interesting how it works that way in cooking too. But it's like any edible herb. Dandelion is an example. Each part of it is edible. Each part of it has a different flavor and even a different medicinal effect. So again, it's you know rabbit trails. Even with just one plant, you find there's so many different possibilities. With your research into traditional recipes, how far back did your research go? We did you go back as far as like some of the Egyptian recipes and things like that? Or were you looking more towards what was coming out of Europe and the European traditions? Like where did that take you as you were working on it? Um, actually, I think I probably went back way back past Egyptian. I discovered that there's, yeah, I think it's kind of a burgeoning field, but there's a lot of, or not a lot of, but some archaeological work that's being done specifically to find out whether certain things that they used to think were used for cooking were actually used for mulching grain or were brewing setups. So I I did go into the Egyptian thing a little bit. And to, to be honest, you know, the, the Egyptian beer thing has brought up a fair bit, and I kind of wanted to look into that, but then see if there's anything else that interested me from other parts of the world. So I, I didn't end up getting around to brewing any Egyptian beers. It was on my list. I found some interesting ideas of brewing, like with like supposedly they started their brews with bread that had yeast on it. So, yeah, I touched upon a little bit of in the book, the historical aspects of it. But I, I was finding all this interesting stuff about basically Neolithic brewing, about using you know rocks, uh, a saddle, a saddle kern setup, which is a uh, one rock with an indentation, another rock that's kind of round, and you crush the grains with that, and then you heat the uh, you heat the mash, which is the grains and the water, which brings out the sugars, by taking a really hot rock that's been in a fire and then slowly lowering it into that, and also boiling the wort that way, which is the unfermented beer, so. That, in addition to all the ingredients, uh, things like meadow sweet and juniper and stuff came up with that a lot. So that I went back as far as I could and was tried to find what archaeological research I found. And then there, there were a couple great sources where they had actually experimented with similar stuff. So I kind of followed their lead and did what as best I could in my you know, little Kentucky urban homestead. So I had to modify things a little bit, but for the most part, I feel that I came close to emulating what they were doing. Did you go about and make your, your stone beer, grinding your grains with rocks and then dropping the hot rock in to get everything heated? I did that a couple times. I, I do plan on doing it some more. It is definitely one of those things that's process and time intensive and requires assistance. So an example is, so the, the first time I tried it, I, I just took you know, some rocks I had in the yard that looked that worked about size-wise what I needed for crushing the grains. I just want to practice with a one-gallon batch because it does take a little little more time and effort to to crush the grains. So I didn't want to do a full five gallons. Now, grains crushed that way and crushed with a regular modern grinder are going to pretty much come out the same, but I still want to get the, the feel for it. So I did that, and then I just took a crock that I usually use for mead for my wild fermentation, and I set it kind of out in the sun. I was actually going by a recipe um, that someone had tried to emulate something similar. I can't remember where at the moment, but it was like essentially in the Middle East. So they were talking about fermenting at like 90 degrees and that sort of thing. And it was a hot summer day. So, so I, you know, took all those grains, put it in, put some water in with them, 
And I, I didn't even heat it because one thing I was also playing with was I found out a lot of times that there were there was a lot of raw fermentation, cold fermentation, which means no heat at all, no boil, kind of like when you're making mead. So, you know, it was interesting. I, I, I let it sit overnight covered. And, you know, the, by a day or two, it was fizzing and I and fermenting. And I took a drink of it and it was it was really good. It was like kind of drinking a cereal. I mean, these are cereal grains. Now, I will say that from what I read, this was intended to be something you drank within a couple of days, and it gave it would you know it's to give you sustenance. So I tried letting some of it go a little bit longer, and it went sour in not such a good way. But I kind of figured that would be the case. So that's an example. And then I did do one. You know, after that one, I got a, my friend Steve Steve Cole together, and he, he's he's the one guy who's who's willing to do the really crazy experiments with me that I hang out with. So yeah, we did the hot rock thing, and that that took a good bit of a a day and into the evening. And um, interesting story about how I had to get the rocks for that. You can't just use any rock because some rocks are too porous and will shatter. And so one that I read was a uh, was best to use is granite. And I, you know, I, I, I kind of looked around, asked around. I wasn't aware of any granite quarries near me. And then somebody said, hey, I know this um, place down the road that basically makes tombstones. And so I was like, I'll go talk to him. And he just pointed me to the side of a hill where just all the extra bits that have broken off. So I, I've actually got some granite in my yard that have like, you know, letters carved in them from a, from a tombstone that when people go by my fire pit and see that, there's usually questions. But it worked great. It was really solid. I mean, I had to, we had to use a shovel to lower it in. And as soon as it, from the fire into the, the wart, and as soon as it hit that, it, it would fizz, you know, more than fizz, you know, hissing. It's, it's a very, uh, visually and everything else, very interesting process. So, so yeah, and, and we made a pretty decent beer out of it, too. I can just imagine all the heat that that granite holds once you get it good and hot to put it in there and then transferring all that out then into your liquid, just like a hot pan. When yeah. you put it in the sink, there's a little bit of water in it, the hissing and skittering. Yeah. And you can cook soup that way, too. That's a, It was a traditional way of heating water for all kinds of things. And then you mentioned not only going back historically, but also to other places in the world. What were some of those other ferments that you experimented with? I didn't cover nearly as much of the world as I'd hoped I would. But yeah, I did go a little further than I did. You know, there's a reason this one isn't called brew beer like a Viking, because I went a little beyond that. So we went with my nickname, Yeti. As far as experimentation and research, I did end up focusing on a fair bit of Scandinavia, just because there's so much interesting that's going on there now with people rediscovering stuff that's been going on all along. But South America, I, I touched a little bit. Something I mean to explore more is is various parts of Africa. Like I recently heard of banana beer, which is not in the book, but now I'm like, I wish it was. So South America was, was an area where I did end up focusing a little more on my actual experimentation. So learning that, you know, the indigenous South American beers were primarily from corn. I mean, corn was such an important thing to them that they had corn gods and, you know, corn festivals and rituals. So a, uh, a common one that still is drank there in various parts today is, it's called Chicha, C-H-I-C-H-A. And there are, there are actually a whole bunch of other ones. That's just kind of the one more people seem to know about. Now, I, I Anybody who's heard of this before, and I notice you're kind of laughing, I, I should specify, though, there's chicha, and I'll explain what each of those means, and there's chicha, chicha de muco, 
And the mukuro basically means the spitball. So essentially what it is, it's, it's made from corn. And corn is a grain like any other grain. It can be malted just like barley and wheat and everything else. And I actually did manage to get a hold of you know, the, some of the purple corn. It's usually a purple color because of the purple corn. So I, I had, had to order that on the Internet um, just because I wanted to get it as, as authentic as possible. So there are two different types of beer that I made with that, both that are in the book. One is the very traditional method, which is basically you either coarsely grind the uh, the corn, or in my case, I found it was better to moisten it a little bit. And we're talking like what basically looks like dry feed corn. And you need to actually chew it up to get the sugars that you can ferment. So when you malt grains, you're actually heating them. And, you know, there's a whole other, there's more to the process than that. But essentially, you're you're wanting to get some enzymes to turn the starches into sugars, which you do with heat. Turns out we've got enzymes in our saliva that do the same thing. And the interesting thing about how they figured out that people have been doing this, they still make it this way. But I found some research where they found caves where there were just piles of what looked like just people had been chewing up various parts of corn and various things. And I I think from what they, they were just trying to figure out ways to get nutrients out of it any way they could. And at some point they realized that it could actually be fermented into a drink, which I'm sure came about accidentally the first time. Nobody probably sat down and thought, I'm going to chew up a bunch of corn and spit it and see if I can turn it into something. So yeah, the, the process for making was traditionally done as a communal thing. Everybody would sit in a circle and there'd be a kind of a communal pot in the middle and they'd tell stories and chew up a bunch of dried corn and spit it in that pot and <laughs> so that that is the 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 uh, malting process essentially and you know at that point you're just doing like you do a standard beer and you're subjecting it to heat so you know anything that's germ wise that's in there is long gone mm-hmm. and i know very few people were interested in helping me or even tasting it but what I like to tell them is that you go into any restaurant and you're subjected to many, many more germs than you than you are from drinking this because it's all been boiled out and then fermented out. Boiling and fermentation are two of the primary ways to, you know, make food that has bacteria and it's safe. But that that said, it's, it was still a challenge. I, I made a one-gallon batch and it did end up just being me over about a month or so just watching Netflix and having my mouth full of really dry corn. I mean, it's, it's, it's not, it's not a pleasant thing to do. There's a reason it was done communally, but I was, you know, I I was the only one that ended up drinking that and it was meant to be drank young because it's, there's nothing in it to keep it from going sour. Mm -hmm. So when it was fermenting and got there on two, 3% alcohol, which is traditionally how it's done. You drink it while it's still fermenting and fizzy. It was just sweet delicious i mean i loved it i let some of it go for a bit and it just kind of went flat and a little bit sour but i have in my book a no spit chicha recipe which is you you take the corn and you just malt it the normal way and i've actually got some barley in it as well and a little bit of hops and that you can actually bottle like a regular beer and give it some time and it's still got this nice purple color and it's quite good so when chicha and the spit free version and some of the other recipes that are out there are interesting to me because of my diagnosis with celiac disease. And this is something I know that the audience is familiar with because I brought it up before and what it's like to go gluten-free and having brewed beer 
and then made wine and mead, but still really missing beer and a lot of those flavors, and being able to explore other grains. And uh, many of the gluten-free grains, like teff and millet and some of the other options that are out there, don't necessarily ferment in the same way, so you can't malt them and necessarily expect that same enzymatic reaction to draw out as many sugars. And so a lot of times it's either increasing the amount of grain compared to a wheat or barley-based recipe. And so some of these things that you presented are providing more opportunities for myself and others to explore these options. And especially thinking about things that you drink young. And there's a recipe that I ran across years ago using teff that was ground and almost made into like a bread that would then be fermented. But it was a communal beverage that would be drank within three or four days when it was only maybe a half or 1% alcohol just enough to get fizzy and kind of, again, as we mentioned in the beginning, divide that line between like soda or beer or something else. That's uh, practically the number one question I seem to be getting asked about the book so far and people want to buy it. They're asking about gluten-free. And I kind of wish I'd thought to put that term in there somewhere in the book. I'll I'll be using it more in my marketing, I'm sure, because I do have some gluten-free options. Going back to Pascal, I've got some recipes similar to what he does, where it's kind of blurring the lines. And so, you know, making beers, quote unquote, using just like sugar as a fermentable. And we're talking like cane sugar, brown sugar, maybe molasses. And uh, again, this was very historically driven for me because I found a lot of recipes, especially from early colonial American days, with ginger beer that just called for using sugar and like, People like George Washington had a molasses beer recipe, and Ben Franklin, most of the founding fathers, it seems, had some kind of a molasses beer recipe, and usually with spruce, too. Captain Cook was another one. He, he actually has a spruce molasses beer recipe because he found out that spruce prevented scurvy. So yeah, what I ended up doing was that I, I do realize people like their terminology and their classification and want to know what they're drinking. So when I started making these recipes myself... A lot of what I've read said that they taste very similar to beer, and they do, but really not a hoppy grain beer. So I, in my book, I, I talk about them as being more akin to a hard soda, and what I ended up deciding to call them was simple ales, because it really is an incredibly quick, simple thing you can make in your kitchen in no time at all, and for a minute, even with no special equipment. So it's just basically making a tea with some sugar, putting it in a vessel, fermenting it, and you can actually, usually adding adding a lot of different herbs and spices and things like ginger. And you can drink it young enough that it's okay for kids to drink. It pretty much is just a natural soda. And that's just if you start drinking it before it really starts getting into the fermentation. Or you can let it clarify and go to maybe 5-6% alcohol and bottle it, prime it, which is what you do to make it carbonated. It actually can make for, especially in the summer, just a really delicious basically what tastes like a soda but you know has the alcohol content of a beer so yeah no gluten any of that it gives an interesting side to explore as well if you wanted to push the out the fermentable sugars content choose a a yeast that will handle a high alcohol content and you could even just rack it off and create some kind of a wine from that that's where i think the dividing line is for me because most people when they make wine are using sugar so they might say well that's just a wine Sure. I mean, maybe think of it as a table wine or something, but you're carbonating it usually. So in my mind, if you're adding enough more sugar to bring it up to, like, say, 10, 12% alcohol, then you've got a wine. 
But mentioning wine and yeasts there, one of the other things that I wanted to talk with you about was your experimentation with yeasts, because it was when I was brewing and venting and doing mead making and all of that, I was really experimenting a lot with what yeasts I was using to get to certain percentages of alcohol. Or like when I was doing mead, a lot of time I would use a champagne yeast because I found that I could get a really strong fermentation in the beginning. And though I haven't made nearly as much mead as you and many of the other people have, one of the things that I found in doing it that way with the champagne yeast is I never got a stuck fermentation with honey. And so that was a lot of place where I was playing between using dry yeasts, pitching with liquid yeasts, talking with the folks and trying to find out what was going on. And then I also had, it was um, Sam Adams Millennium was a very high alcohol content beer. And reading some of the history that went into being able to produce that was apparently that they would just keep pushing the alcohol content and then whatever yeast survived that brewing, they would pitch that into the next batch and push it higher, mm-hmm. pull what survived, pitch it again to get to where they had what they wanted to get this really high alcohol content beer that still had like the carbohydrate concentration of a stout. And so I'm wondering, where did your exploration of yeast go? Because my understanding is that you didn't do nearly as much wild fermentation this time around because of the interest in what you were finding with the yeasts. I found that I I came to start calling yeast in my presentations on my PowerPoint slides. I labeled this as the most simple, complex subject in the world. I mean, I'm sure there are plenty of others, but, but, you know, yeast is really just incredibly simple and easy to work with almost any yeast is just some basic parameters and you'll get fermentation but they are you know i i decided to to start to divide the first part of the book into various divisions but i do four chapters where i focus on one of the main ingredients the primary ingredients of beer malt malted grains water yeast and hops. That was actually done that way because of the Reinheitsgebot, the, the law that I'm trying to circumvent. But my editor and I decided that I should start by focusing on what that law was, how it came about, why hops became so big. And that law was the German purity laws for beer that it only contained the four ingredients, right? Yeah, the German beer purity law. And, so, and then I do have a one after the hops on all the herbs and spices. But you know what I was getting at with that was... You know, I got to the point where I'm like, well, I got a whole chapter on yeast and a whole chapter on water, which I didn't think I was, I didn't know what was going to happen with that. Well, what I ended up doing was doing an entire chapter on yeast. So I researched it a lot and was finding all these different things going on that, that I, I mean, I knew there was a lot of different types of yeast and I knew it was a you know pretty complex subject once you got into it. But so I definitely, in that section, I do talk about wild fermentation and wild yeasts and that sort of thing and how you can start a beer using a wild fermented starter. But it was really interesting to learn how all these different strains that we now use today, lager yeasts, ale yeasts, and how they came about and why they do what they do. So, you know, an example is the yeast that we uh, that we use for lager. You know, lagering is, is, is a German style of beer and lager I mean, to lager means to store. They would actually store it in ice caves. And then they found out that they were creating a much more clear, crisp beer because of that. And then in more modern times, people, when scientists were analyzing the yeast, they actually found out that the yeast that is used for lagers hybridized with your standard beer yeast. And the hy- the other part of the hybrid came from like Patagonia or somewhere and they don't know that it must have come over on a ship or something like that. But just an example of all the 
crazy stuff. Um, another one that I was really interested in was going back to Scandinavia was even in modern times, a lot of the farmhouse brewers use this yeast that's called Kvik, K-V-E-I-K. And it's, it's been passed, you know, everybody who uses it up there has been, it's been passed down through who knows how many generations. I mean, it could very well have gone back to Viking times. And, and the way they do it is they, they just kind of, you know, I've seen, read some blogs and seen some pictures and they, they just kind of take the leftover from the last batch of beer, put it in like a, a jar. It's just this, the kind of slurry from the leftover beer. So just this kind of sludgy stuff and put it in the jar and they just kind of sat in the refrigerator until they're ready to use it again. And it's, the interesting thing about it is it produces these like citrus overtones, but there's no citrus in the beer at all. There's no reason citrus should be in it. Just the yeast itself has picked up the citrus flavor. So it's, it's really interesting. I mean, that's why we have wheat yeasts and Belgian yeasts and all that, because each yeast has its own flavors. And you can even experiment with, with wild yeast and blending it with one of those other yeasts and maybe create your own little hybrid. And that was the most interesting thing about it, I think. And to find out that historically and even some places today, you know, we hear the term farmhouse brewing. And what that really means is each farmhouse had their own kind of a brew. So our farmhouse as a style really isn't really the best way. You know, it's used as a style to describe it now, but it's, it's really multiple styles. So each would have their own brewing method, but they'd also have their own yeast that would have its own character. And that yeast would have been passed down through generations within that family. So you see what I'm saying? It can, you can easily go down all these paths. And so the yeast topic, you know, the yeast chapter got me a lot more interested in yeast than I already was. Well, it's interesting for me to have these kinds of lines and things because I, growing up, I did a lot of baking. My mother was a baker. And so she had that. There was something that we knew as friendship bread, which was a fermented cake starter or like your sourdough starters that go back and, you know, that have been fed for years after years after years. And sometimes I wonder how apocryphal they are, uh, whether or not a family has kept a starter for that long, but I'm sure that there are some traditions that have that, you know, go back for generations and generations. And now to hear about the way that we can be doing this with our brewing yeasts and our venting yeasts and our mead making yeasts, that there may be this wild start to some of them, but then we can kind of domesticate them for our farmhouse or homestead uses. Yeah. I mean, it's, the, the modern yeast you can buy has been super domesticated into like one single strain that we know pretty much consistently work the same way every time. But yeah, again, we can do that ourselves, create our own. And as it keeps going, it kind of develops its own character. And uh, another interesting thing about the, the bread, you know, in some places, the yeast they used for the bread was also the yeast they used for beer. So like in Finland, uh, sati, S-A-H-T-I is another one of those farmhouse brews that people are finding out has has been continually brewed, probably nonstop, and it's just, you know, most of modern brewing doesn't know about it. But it's made with a with a finished bread yeast. And you can make a version of it wherever you are with any kind of bread yeast. Uh, from what I've read, the finished bread yeast doesn't really have a super unique character that's going to make it that much different. But it was just out of necessity. They, you know, they had a certain type of yeast that they would just make some bread with it and they'd brew some beer with it. And and the only thing about bread yeast is it has a little more bacteria in it than other types of yeast. So sati was traditionally drank fairly young. Um, there are ways you can make a similar version that you can bottle and that last, let go longer. But 
you know, again, like the chicha, it's one that when I make it, I usually don't bottle it. Sometimes I'll bottle a few just to see how they, how they do. But for the most part, I'm, once it's fermented down to, or up to, I guess, five, six percent alcohol, I put a cup under the, the brewing bucket and take some out and it's still, it's fizzy like a, uh, like any beer would be. And it's, you know, it's got kind of a, you know, grainy taste to it in a good way, I think. And usually I'm flavoring that with juniper. Uh, you can do hops and other stuff, but traditionally it was done with juniper. It's been kind of nice. I've actually taken to, I still bottle a lot. Bottling is the biggest pain there is when it comes to brewing. I mean, there, there are a lot of aspects of it that are like, why am I doing this? But I, I bottle a bit less now because I've found that some beers, they're just fine not being bottled. And they're not meant to be bottled. Bottling was not my favorite thing. And I used to do the 12 ounce with caps, yeah. sit there with my cap or my hand cap, and then I moved to 16 ounce swing tops. And then finally I, I bought a case of the 750 milliliter swing tops. And that made my life a lot easier, yeah. but I had to prepare if I was going to open one of those. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> but those are all those kinds of things that we learn along the way. What do we enjoy? What do we kind of plan for? And what resources and time do you have available? There are lots of different avenues I'd like to explore with all this, but I'm only one person and, you know, help from friends when I can. But like anybody who's doing any kind of hobby, you you try not to let it take over too much of your life. Mm-hmm. <laughs> Otherwise, it becomes less of a hobby and more of a chore. You remind me that I need to, need to go back to it and that there's space for me to return to brewing with all the gluten-free grains that we've talked about, being able to explore with yeasts and enzymes and some of the things that are out there. But the last thing that I wanted to ask you about formally for this interview is that you have an entire chapter on water. And it's one of those things that I've dealt with, but I didn't really think about that much. Being on a well for a number of years or just like buying spring water or distilled water from the store if I wanted to not be concerned about the minerals that are going into something. But I was wondering why you decided to dig into that as a subject for somebody who's interested in brewing. What I end up deciding to do, I will say at the uh, suggestion of my editor as we were discussing how to structure the book, and we want to focus a good bit of it on just the various ingredients, and water is one of the absolutely necessary ingredients in beer. A good amount of beer is water. You don't really think about that because it's a liquid, but it's beer, but it had to come from somewhere. So obviously, and you know, when you think about it, just as the species in general, water is uh, pretty important to us. So when we decided that we were going to need to make that a chapter, um, I that was like, okay, well, I guess that'll be a short chapter. It, it is fairly short compared to the others, but I find a lot of interesting stuff. And it, it turns out there's, you know, there are brewing books out there just on water. There's a, a series that basically takes each of those chapters I did and does an entire book out of it. There's a malt. I think Brewer's Publication does it. So one on malt, one on hops, uh, yeast, and then water. And the water one is pretty heavily chemistry focused and is as much of an interest as I have in science and like the idea of chemistry, despite the fact that I got a D minus in it in high school. But I, I did my research. So the stuff in the book is, is accurate. But, you know, I, I always emphasize there are so many people who t- talk about brewing and teach brewing where they almost immediately launch into the super technical scientific stuff that's going on in the background and it goes over people's heads not everyone i'm sure but people are just getting into it or well it sounds like maybe a little much so i i always try to keep the technicalities in the background as much as i can so i went at this with that approach but i did find that 
you know, talking a little bit about like water pH, which in general, you're really not going to worry about with brewing. When you get to all grain brewing, you do, it does help to check your pH. Not absolutely, not absolutely necessary. So yeah, I, I went into a little bit into the scientific technical aspects of it, but you know, went fairly light on it and had to throw in some, some bad jokes and whatnot. Get to talking about minerals and stuff and metals is one of them. And then I kind of go off on a little tangent about, I happen to listen to a little bit of a, a metal hunt. So anyway, there's some hopefully not too bad jokes to try to keep the water chapter from being boring. But uh, kind of throughout our last little bit about the water, uh, I did end up, of course, having to, or having to, wanting to um, look into the historical aspects. So that was a big reason beer came about was, was that water for a long time was thought of as being dangerous because in a lot of cases it was, especially when people started settling down and, you know, basically um, dumping their sewage in the streets and that sort of thing. So they, you know, they found that water, if it was boiled, and then especially if it was, had some herbs and preservatives mixed into it and fermented and turned into beer, that it was much safer. So for a long time, really up until like the 18th century, water or beer was thought of as safer to drink than water. And there, there's all kinds of interesting little stories about that. that I throw a few in there. Uh, one that I'll throughout here is the um like the pilgrims and all the other colonists that came over a huge part of their store was beer and one of the captains of the ships when he sent the people that he was taking over to the shore to find somewhere to settle there was this dispute that they were running out of beer and they needed enough to get back to england because you know water really wouldn't stay around the whole time it goes stagnant so there there was a bit of a Bit of a tiff on it. They worked it out. but And then usually a, a brew house is one of the first things that was built. So water and beer really do kind of go hand in hand. And so it's just another interesting ingredient and turns out interesting topic. And the way that that desire for safe water leads to like the, an entire family drinking beer. Mm-hmm. And I read a story. I don't remember where at this point. I think it was one of the brewing books referencing a small beer. Something that's like a two to three percent alcohol. It was like what the what the children would drink, mm-hmm. you know. And everyone everyone would have like a pint of this at breakfast to start their day, and you know. And then having your taverns where you might find something that's a little bit more has a bit more alcohol to it. Yeah. So yeah. So you, you see a lot of old like Guinness era ads that say things like beer, a family drink, and that kind of thing. And that's what you know. You hear about how the Egyptians built the pyramids and were basically you know drinking beer the whole time. Mm-hmm. They're not. You know, drinking high alcohol beers, they're drinking very grainy, nutritious, maybe one to three percent alcohol beer, and then they're—I'm sure their overlords were drinking the the good stuff. But but yeah, it's beer has helped us survive as as a as a species is really very well, maybe a big part of how we came to settle down and create civilization and all that. But that's a whole other story. What you just brought up there about the Egyptians drinking all day. One thing that I was wondering is, with a lot of these historical recipes, were they filtering out a lot of the grains and things? Could you find that? Or were they really drinking something that was more like a an alcoholic porridge? I found that it actually seems like it may have been both, because a lot of the graves that were dug up that had implements that they think were used for serving and drinking beer and beer-like beverages had strainers and stuff in them. And, and there are even places today, I think in Africa, where they make beer, where they, they just drink it through a straw like everybody just kind of sits around the fermentation vessel and puts the straw beneath all the stuff that's floated to the top but they they were finding in places like egypt and other 
parts of the, the Middle East where they found what, what seemed to be, you know, fairly um, sophisticated brewing and filtering equipment. And it looks like they may have like, you know, bottled, bottled it in like clay jars that they sealed the best they could. And so, you know, it's, it's history. It's, it's, there's only so much you can say for sure, but that's why I really like to look at as much of the archaeology as I can and find out what those people are discovering and just kind of figure out what I can from that. And it's always an interesting exploration with people who are doing living history work, trying to recreate a lot of these recipes as you were doing. And then as more and more of the academic research continues, we get more ideas of things that we can experiment and try based on what we're finding. Well, I really appreciate the conversation you've had with me today to explore your new book. And it gives me hope that I'll be able to drink decent beers again very soon. I still have some of my one gallon test fermenters and some of my locks. So Mm -hmm. maybe this week I'll start a batch of something based on molasses or one of the fermentable sugars. But with that inspiration for me, is there anything else that you'd like to share with the listeners before we draw this to a close? Yeah, I guess mostly just if you're just getting into brewing or just thinking about it, don't overthink it. Like, don't do what I did. And so like in the book, it, it starts with the simple owls and then goes into the overthinking. And by overthinking, in my case, I mean, I went into the really, went into brewing with grain and going into all the historical stuff. But as far as brewing in general, it's a simple process to start with. I like to say, you know, start simple. If And if you like simple, just stick with simple. Get your brew pot, get your airlock, and go ahead and try something. Yeah, I mean, you definitely want to start with a basic recipe and, you know, go with, find some kind of a guide. Uh, I can recommend at least two books myself, but <laughs> <laughs> no, I mean, don't don't start from nothing. But but all you really need to know is you need some kind of fermentable sugar, some kind of yeast, some water, basic equipment. Learn how to use those and don't feel the need to stick exactly with the recipe. Start experimenting with the flavors and ingredients and have fun with it. That's the most important thing. Thank you for taking this time with me away from your family at the Mother Earth News Fair to sit down and record this in person. I always enjoy the times when we get to talk about these things, and it's always great to be face-to-face when we do it. Yeah, well, I always enjoy it, too, and maybe we'll uh, have another meat or even a gluten-free beer together sometime. And that was Jeremy Zimmerman. Find out more about him at jeremy-zimmerman.com. That's Jeremy, J-E-R-E-M-E, hyphen, Zimmerman, Z-I-M-M-E-R-M-A-N dot com. You'll find links to his website, as well as some so you can pick up your own copies of Brew Beer Like a Yeti and Make Mead Like a Viking. If you'd like to enter to win a signed copy of Jeremy's latest book, for the complete details, head over to patreon.com slash permaculturepodcast, click on posts, and look for the entry, Giveaway, Brew Beer Like a Yeti. I'll randomly select a winner on Thursday, October 18th. Also, as we mentioned Pascal Baldar in this conversation, I've included links to our earlier interviews in the show notes. The lesson of so many interviews often becomes encapsulated in the last few minutes, when I ask the guest for their final thoughts. I felt that way today as I listened to this episode again and put together these notes. As Jeremy said, making beer, wine, mead, or a soda doesn't have to be complicated. When I first started reading books on how to make my own fermented beverages, the information included an ideal list of all the gear you should buy, how to DIY the gear that's too expensive for most home brewers, how to thoroughly sanitize with bleach or commercial cleaners, arguments for whether you should start with whole grain from the beginning or use a kit to press your own grapes 
or to buy ready-to-go juices. Like most interests, you can fall deeply down the rabbit hole if you want to, but it doesn't have to be like that. All you need to do is find a recipe, get a few basic supplies, and get started. You can try your hand with a simple ale or soda, and then continue to mix together your ingredients and try ever more interesting flavors, combining buds or twigs, flowers, herbs, or spices. As I found so many years ago, brewing or making wine or mead is a skill you can learn in a day, but spend the rest of your life continuing to tinker, experiment, and refine your abilities. Whatever you decide to do, or however you decide to do it, have fun and don't overthink it. What are you brewing? What would you like to make? What did you learn from this conversation with Jeremy? Let me know. Leave a comment in the show notes or get in touch. Email show at the permaculturepodcast.com, call 717-827-6266, or drop something in the post. The Permaculture Podcast, P.O. Box 16, Dolphin, Pennsylvania, 17018. Thank you for joining me to celebrate eight years of the Permaculture Podcast and this conversation with my friend, Jeremy Zimmerman. Until the next time, as we move into the ninth year of the show, spend each day creating the world you want to live in by fermenting tasty beverages and taking care of Earth, yourself, and each other.